And today we'll be studying verses 9 through 12. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. I'm going to go ahead and just read though at the, at the beginning, starting in verse 1. But our sermon will be on verses 9 through 12. And let's stand together again for the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through 12. This is God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And you may be seated, and as you do, let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that though this world is passing away, and though we are like the grass of the field, which rises and withers and falls, that your word endures forever. And Father, may this word be implanted in our hearts. And may we learn from you today. Be with this your servant. May my, the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be your words and that Jesus would be glorified. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier in the summer, um, it was exciting to watch the St. Louis Blues win their first Stanley Cup. That's probably true for most everybody in Missouri, and if you weren't a hockey fan, during that, at least that period of time, you became one. I was kind of in that category. I've never really been a hockey fan. I've been to hockey games before, um, amazingly enough, in Arizona. Um, but it was fun to watch, watch them win the Stanley Cup, win the championship. You know, anytime we're involved in our team winning a championship, it's an amazing experience to 
see the grueling season, to see the ups and downs, and then to peak at just the right time and to run through the tournament and to win. It's, it's kind of a thing that's memorable. It's excitement that you want to last. But here's the thing with championships. They're transitory. They're temporary. They don't last. You see, as soon as the confetti stops flying, as soon as the trophy is hoisted in the air, preparations are already being made for next year. And that's the way it is in life in general, isn't it? There are many ups and downs. There's many joys and sorrows. But life in this world, life under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, is temporary. As we look forward to the unfading glory of our God and our Savior in the heavenly places, we live a life which is, in this world, passing away. Well, we are, again, here looking at the book of James. And and last time we had looked at James, we studied the first eight verses. In our text today, though, is within that larger context, which is one of the reasons I wanted to read it again. Namely, though, verse 2, which says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, as we saw last time, the reason that we can count it all joy is because the trials which come into our life produce something in us. Namely, trials aid us in our sanctification, that is, our growth in Christ, our our death to sin and life in Christ. As we do this and, and, and live for Him. You see, trials, James tells us, produces steadfastness. It produces perseverance. They help us to grow in grace. Trials also have the benefit of giving us assurance of our salvation. This is the case because those who remain in the faith show themselves to be a part of God's elect as they stand fast amidst great trial. You see, the fakers and the false converts, those who enjoy the benefits of Christ, but want nothing of the obedience to Christ, walk away from the faith when they come under trial. And this is why you can have assurance as you endure trial and you stand fast. You're standing fast, not because you're so strong, because the one who keeps you is strong. And why is it that people who seem to be converted to Christ, though, ultimately walk away? In 1 John, it says this in 2.19, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. You see, trials in life, great difficulties we may face, are like a winnowing fork which separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who are truly in Christ are saved unto the end, and those who are not are burned in the lake of fire. Now, one of the purposes of preaching 
the whole of scriptures is to prepare you, the people of God, for the trials which are to come. And as I've said before, it's not that trials might come. Like, just in case there's the possibility you might undergo trials. No, they will come. And so one of the concerns of the pastor, the shepherd of the people, is to teach and prepare you to face those trials in a God-glorifying way. Prepare you for difficulties, exhort you to search your heart, to die to sin and live unto righteousness, to call you to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the only preparation that you can have for trial. And so trials grant to us the blessing of assurance. They aid us in our sanctification. They produce steadfastness. They grant to us an increase of godly wisdom. And this is why, as we saw last time, that we can count it all joy when we face trial. Now we come to verses 9 through 12. A section that seems, in some ways, disconnected from what had come before. This is what it says, starting in verse 9. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because, like a flower of grass, he will pass away. You know, as I started, we said that the nature of life is transitory. It's temporary. We are in this present world for a relatively short period of time. You might live into your 70s, 80s, 90s. You might reach over 100, perhaps. That's still a very short period of time in the grand scheme of this world. We're here for this very short period of time. But during that time, during this period of time, the Lord gives us to be on this earth, we will face a variety of trials. We will have ups and downs. We will have seasons of joy. We will have seasons of great sorrow. And so what James is presenting here are what one commentator called contrasting parallels. You have the humble and the poor in their high position. And then you have the rich and by implication, the powerful in their low position. And so as we come to this, as we come to James, as a reader, we we should be struck by something very strange because this is a very bewildering set of ideas. They're, They're contrary to what you would expect to see. What is strange is where the parallels are found. Which is that you have two sets of brothers, and both brothers are to take pride or to glory in something. And so there's a sense in which they're to, to boast or take glory in their respective positions. So that's kind of strange. Now, keep in mind, James is writing to Christians, Christians who are scattered among the nations. And he knows that many of them are living difficult lives. Remember, this is written in the context of persecution. And so they're living great, great lives, they're living lives of great difficulty. And in some cases, some of them are living lives in extreme poverty. 
the kind that you, you, th those of us in this room really don't understand. And by the way, this is the case for mo most Christians in the world, even in our own day. The church in the developing world faces all kinds of difficulties that you and I here in America don't experience. The first time I had ever seen somebody who was literally starving to death was in the developing world, in Africa, in fact, uh, visiting the mission in Karamoja, where uh, a, uh, an African, uh, it was actually grandma, and some uh, grandchildren had come to the gate, and they were literally starving to death. That's the kind of experience that changes you, that you, you, you can't unremember that. Most of us don't experience that. Most of us don't understand that. And even seeing that, I don't, can't say that I completely comprehend it. At any rate, back in James, within the larger context of suffering, is what James, he's writing in this context of suffering. They're suffering trials. And see, the Christian life is a life filled with potholes and pits and dangers. And so as Christians, we're going to face a variety of trials. And as we do, we're to consider it all joy. And so here you have the poor and the humble, the powerless. They're to rejoice. They're to take glory in what he says is their high position and the rich in their low position. So to bring this into our modern context, going back to thinking about the brothers and sisters in Karamoja, Uganda, they're to rejoice in their high position of extreme poverty. And then you and I, here in the American church, where we have so many material advantages, we have so much, we're really the rich, we are to be humbled and to rejoice in that humbled low position. So what does it mean that the poor and the weak and the powerless and the humble are to glory in their high position? And how is it that they have a high position? You see, that's another part of this that strikes you a little bit strange, right? And what does it mean for the rich and the powerful and the successful and the influential? And by the way, to clue you in, that's us. How are we to glory in our low position? Notice that the attitude commanded here in the scriptures is the opposite of what would have been adopted by the world. Right? In the world, the rich would glory in their high position, and the humble would be, well, told they ought to glory in their low position. That's just where you are. That's what the, how the world... So the scriptures have flipped this thing on its head. Now, why is this? Well, here, here's what I think is the answer. The one who is poor, the one who suffers as a brother in Christ in this temporal world, this temporary world, does not need to concern himself with the things of this world. He doesn't need to feel bad for himself that he doesn't have because he's looking forward to something else. 
He's looking forward to the heavenly realm. You see, those in Christ look forward to the day when Christ returns and when our bodies of of humility will be transformed into the bodies of glory, Philippians 3 tells us. So those who have been made low in this world will be elevated in the new heavens and new earth. And this, by the way, is the hope of all who believe. And for the poor, this is the greater thing to look forward to. And so the poor are, in an already but not yet sense, lifted into that elevated position. So there's a sense in which, in this world, the poor have nowhere to go but up. And in Christ, they are lifted up, they are given the hope of the weight of glory for which is to come. You see, the poor in this world have no need to worry because it is easier for them to have an eternal perspective. Because if you don't have much, you can, it's easier to look forward to what is to come. They're not, they're not necessarily as caught up in the things of this world. The humble in this world will look forward to the fullness of Christ's kingdom where they are adopted as sons and they are heirs of the promise in this elevated position that even now they enjoy. Now, you're probably wondering, what does that mean for the rich? Because I've already indicated that's us, right? What does verse 10 mean for us? Well, one thing to make clear James is not saying that the rich in this world are outside the kingdom. He's not saying that. Now, people will misread it that way. That's not what he's saying. Remember, he is speaking to believers here. In fact, the sentence structure in the original Greek make clear that the rich are also part of the brothers of verse 9. He's speaking to the church. James is talking about believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is talking about brothers in Christ who happen to have material wealth in this world. Okay, Just to be clear on that. And what James is saying is that the rich brother in Christ is not to boast in his riches. He's not to boast in his earthly power or in his influence. He's to boast in his identity in Christ and in his identity with God's people, which is a matter of humiliation before this present world. Do you see that? The wealthy in this world are to consider what they have as nothing in comparison to the glory which is yet to come. You see how both the rich and the poor are looking forward to the same exact thing? This is the reason that seeking the approval of the world is not helpful to the cause of Christ. Too many pastors and leaders and Christians in our nation are too quick to seek the world's approval, to try to have influence in the world, to fit into the cultural norms and ideas of this world. You see, you and I need to be humble before the Lord, recognizing that all that we have in material wealth, whether we have much or little, is is itself a gift from God. 
We are but stewards of blessings. And what is to come for us, just like the poor, at the end of the age, in the new heavens and new earth, is far more glorious, far greater than anything we may have here and now in this transitory world. And so the rich and the poor, those who have all that is needed in this world for comfort, all those, those who have all that there is for ease are to view those things as worthless before a holy and righteous and awesome God. We're not powerful in an eternal sense. Not really. We're wretched sinners who plead before God the Father the blood of the eternal Son even Jesus Christ, our Savior. All that I bring is worthless. I am nothing but for the grace of God. Such is to be the attitude of us, beloved. You see, you and I here in 21st century North America fall into the category of the rich in this world. Yeah, I understand there are uh, poor even among us. But even the poor among us are wealthier than most people in history. Even the poorest among us have more than the majority of the world. Very very few people in North America live as truly poor and destitute. Not, Not really. We who are rich in this world are to glory in our being brought low and humbled before our Savior. Because all of the wealth in the world will one day be stripped away. Money, wealth, all of this fades just like the flower falls and wilts and is blown away in the field. The writer of Ecclesiastes reminds us that all that one earns and builds will be given to someone else. And then who knows what happens to it after that. You're going to die one day. Maybe not today. Pray the Lord it isn't today. And what you have, you know, they don't stick it in the coffin when then you get to use it later. No. You're dead. That goes to somebody else. And who knows what happens. All that you have in this world is not yours to keep. So those brothers and sisters in Christ who have little in this world will be raised up and they will glory in what they have to look forward to. And the brothers and sisters who have much in this world will gladly and joyously give up all of those things because of what they have looked forward to in Christ. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3, 7 and 8, But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, what does he say, rubbish. It's garbage in order that I may gain Christ. 
All of the accolades, all of the power, all of the prestige, all of our own self-righteousness, all of this is lost in comparison to Christ. Oh, what joy our, our Savior brings to us. You and I cannot purchase salvation. You, all the money in the world will not help you buy eternal life. You and I cannot save ourselves. All is lost because all is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, James illustrates this for us in verse 11. Look what he says. He says, "For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way the rich man will fade away." even while he goes about his business. This is why the rich are to glory in their low position and the poor in their high. Because all that we can gain in this world is meaningless in comparison to eternity. James is here speaking about the transitory nature of things. And the Bible in other places uses similar language to describe the same idea. Psalm 103 As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. Or how about Isaiah 40? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And then you have Psalm 49, which cuts out the metaphor and gets right to the heart of the matter in verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 49. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. The possessions that we have, the things which we store up, are temporary. They're not going to last. James points to life in the desert to illustrate an important point. You see, in Israel, Israel is a desert, has a desert climate, And the way that a plant life dies off is drought. And that drought comes with the sun, the scorching heat which withers away life in the plant. And it dies and it blows away. So when there is drought in the desert, what was once lush and green and beautiful turns brown and ugly and dead. Having grown up in Arizona, I can testify to the, this is the way it works in the desert. You can have flowers year-round if it rains. When the rain stops and the sun beats down, the flowers and grass die. This is what life is like for the rich. This is what life is like for all of us. It's all an illusion. It's all temporary. You cannot trust in your riches. Please do not trust in your riches. What you have, it is famously said, you cannot take with you. 
And the day when that may happen, it may come suddenly. It certainly came suddenly this week for David Haney. In the verse 11, end of the verse 11, it says, In the same way the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. You know, the day of your death is appointed by God. You don't know that day. And so for the wealthy, that day of death may come even as you're still in the midst of acquiring wealth. You might, you might be going out, you might be doing business, you might be acquiring wealth, and you could have a massive heart attack and fall over dead. You don't know what that day is. This is what James means by going about his business. Just as a plant is scorched by the heat of the sun and dies, so this is the case with people. The rich and their riches will one day fade away. And it may come on a day that you don't expect. But it is a day appointed by God. And so what James is doing here is talking to two specific groups of people, both of whom are brothers in, in the faith, both of whom enjoy salvation in Jesus Christ. Both groups, the poor and the rich, are encouraged to look beyond the transitory world around them, to look forward to the eternal kingdom which is coming in Christ, that even, in fact is even now here in Christ. They are to find their identity not in their current situation. You see, your identity is not found in how much money that you have. Your identity is not found in how big your house is or what kind of house you live in. Your identity is not found in the car that you drive. Your identity is not found in your being maligned and abused by this world. Your identity is not found in your insignificance or your significance to the world. It's not found in your power or your powerlessness in this world. Your identity is not found in your status or perhaps lack of status. Beloved church, your identity can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved you from your sins, who has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. If you are a Christian, if you have been adopted and made a son and heir of the promise, you have been brought into a new and eternal kingdom. You have a true and awesome king. So the poor are to glory and they're being lifted up into this glorious position as they look forward to the fullness of that kingdom. And the rich are to glory, and they're being brought low and and humbled, as they humbly admit that they cannot purchase entrance into this kingdom. They cannot bring this wealth, this temporal wealth, but they must humble themselves and trust and rest on Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Because everything else is rubbish. This is what James is saying. Well, like bookends, James returns to the theme of trials, which he began in verse 2. 
Because really, he hasn't actually left that theme. This seems like this was uh, something different. seems like things changed, but he returns again to this. This is what he says. He says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because he, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You see, this whole section from verse 2 through verse 12 really is about trial. The benefits of the trials as God moves us to rely on him and to have our faith perfected and assured. There's a real blessing for those who persevere through trial. When trials come, they test your faith. They test your resolve to follow Christ. And it is a blessing because afterwards you receive something. You receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. But what is James saying? Is is James saying that our salvation is determined by our faithfulness to God through trial? Is that what he's saying? Again, this is something that some people want to try to say. I think it's misunderstanding James. We're saved by grace, aren't we? Now you might think, well, is James somehow contradicting the gospel? No. The point is that those who are truly in Christ, those who have been saved by grace through faith, those who receive the gift of God, those who have been eternally elected from all eternity, will necessarily stand the test of trials. Like, they have to. They've been purchased by God. They're going to stand the test of trials. This is why there's blessing in trials. Those who are steadfast through trials are those who have been elected from eternity past because the God who saves you is also the God who keeps you. This is how standing fast and persevering is an indication of spiritual realities. And so as One of the ways in which you can have assurance of your salvation is that when the trials come, you persevere. And so you don't stand fast in order to be saved, but rather, because you are saved, you stand fast. Even your remaining in the faith is a gift from God. So we're not saved by faithfulness, but through faith. And you and I have faith, true saving faith. Our heart's desire will be faithfulness to Christ. Because the Christian considers Christ to be more valuable than anything, whether he has much or little. And so there's nothing which can threaten your faith in Christ. Nothing can stand between you and your love for Christ if you're in him. Those who persevere will receive the crown, which is eternal life and eternal adoption, eternal inheritance in Christ. And so, beloved, I ask you, are you persevering in your faith? Are you withstanding the trial? And strange as it sounds, there is blessing to be found as we face trials in life. Well, as we consider these lessons that God teaches us, we, we see the transitory, temporary nature of this world. And so I ask you, where is your hope found? Are you building your spiritual house on the sand or on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you glory in the riches that you have in this world? 
Or are you in humble reliance on the Lord, looking forward to that eternal kingdom? I hope you can see that as James writes to believers, and he's writing to us as the church, he has pastoral concerns. He wants the church to see the blessings which come from the Lord. The riches of the heavenly places which are ours through Jesus Christ. Because this life is passing away. This is why the poor can exalt in their high position and the rich humbled in theirs. Because whether we have an abundance or little, we are joint heirs together in Christ. And the reality of this blessing is why we stand fast during trials, because our reliance is on the Lord. And so church, if you are suffering, if you are in the midst of trial, even here now, take comfort in Christ. For it is Christ who can and will persevere you to the end. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you all praise and glory. We thank you for your word and for the hard things that James says as he pours out a pastor's heart. We thank you, God, that whether we have much or little, that our glory and our boasting is in Jesus Christ. Help us to die to our sin in this world. Help us to persevere to the end. Father, if there are some here who are facing trial, we pray that we're to comfort one another and help one another, but we can also count it all joy in the midst. That as joint heirs together, we look forward together and persevere together for your eternal kingdom, which is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.